Now, last week we said that chapter 6 was a bit like one of those movies where it says, you know, you're into the movie and then suddenly you have a scene and it says over it, five years before this. So now we're fast forwarding again, uh, two kings forward into the reign of King Ahaz. So who is this King Ahaz and what's the, the background? Or why is it important to know that for what we're going to look at this morning? Well, in 2 Kings 16, it tells us in the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. So there's a spiritual background to what's happening here. He's not just another king. He's the king who apostatizes. So we're now about 735 BC, and the big power in this area are the Assyrians. They're beginning to grow and flex their political and military muscles, grabbing territory and dominating the kingdoms around them. One historian described them as skilled and constant in systematic cruelty, they terrorized the peoples around them. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah were no match for this new power. So Israel, the, the apostate northern tribes, have a plan. They join forces with their neighbor, Syria, to the north of them in a mutual defense pact against Assyria. They want Judah to join with them as well. In fact, they demand it. But Ahaz, for whatever reason, is resisting this pressure. In fact, he sought an alliance with the Assyrians. And someone rather wittily said it was like a mouse threatened by two rats who calls the cat for help. Uh, it's not going to end well. So the Northern Alliance is threatening to attack Judah, get rid of Ahaz, and put their own puppet on the throne to absorb Judah into their coalition. But from the start, Isaiah can see with the eye of prophecy that this plan is doomed. God's covenant with the throne of David still stands. And what the people need to do is to turn away from their sin and turn to God. <clears throat> That's why in Isaiah 7, 1, it states that the enemy could not mount an attack against Jerusalem. The prophet wants us to know that this, is, this fight is fixed. God has decided that on this occasion, even though there's a, a, an apostate king there, the threat will not come to anything. There is no need to panic. God is still here with his people. The problem is that Ahaz doesn't believe any of this. He doesn't want to believe it. He prefers to trust to his own resources and the gods who he has started to, to worship other than the God of Israel. And this is the setting. It's a time of crisis, one of the biggest crises of Isaiah's generation. And a time of crisis our hearts can be impacted emotionally so that we make wrong decisions. And so we need to, to refocus our hearts. But where do we refocus them and how? 
And in a sense, that's what's happening here. God already knows, God already sees, God already knows what we're thinking, what we're fearing. And even though the enemies of God's people were sure that their combined strength was more than enough to destroy Judah, and the people of God themselves were terrified at the news of this impending attack, God was still in control. The remedy for a wavering heart is unwavering trust in a sovereign God. So let's look at the story as it unfolds. Well, first of all, there's the crisis. The enemy is at the gates. They'd worked separately against God's people, but now we see them combined. And even though they're not going to be able to overthrow God's people on this occasion, there's still a purpose in God allowing this to happen. It's as though he's gradually turning up the heat. It's gradually he's showing this can get a lot worse unless you turn back to me. And sometimes we can see that in our own lives, can't we? We've heard God's voice, but we've switched off. We've seen perhaps the effects of turning away from him, the beginnings of discipline in our lives, but we've ignored it or we've rationalized it, we've turned it away. And so God brings more and more pressure to bear. Why? Because he loves us. He wants us to turn back to him. And the enemies, of course, were the obvious pagans, the, the Syrians, but also those who had now turned away from God, uh, the, the, the ten northern tribes, the Israelites. And combined with all of this, with this combined opposition, the reaction of the people was a complete loss of confidence. Whenever Ahaz and his son go out to meet Ahaz, he's inspecting the, the aqueduct, preparing for a siege to make sure that the, the, the city will have enough water. His heart is still hard. He's, he's looking to, to human devices for his salvation. So, in the midst of this crisis, this crisis which they have, in a sense, brought upon themselves, what does God do? In the midst of a crisis where the people are politically and emotionally all over the place, what does God do? Well, God does what he always does. He sends his word to refocus the people in the crisis. He doesn't immediately remove the crisis, but he, he wants to change the people's thinking and ultimately their hearts so that from the king down, they will focus back on him. Now, in verse 3, we're told that this is exactly uh, what happens. The Lord said to Isaiah, so Isaiah doesn't go because it's his idea. It's God's idea to send Isaiah with a word uh, to the king. Go now to meet Ahaz and shear Jasub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him. So there's a message that he needs to hear in the midst of his turning his back on God, in the midst of his coping with this crisis, which is part of God's discipline, with his own thinking, God has something to say. There's something we could very easily miss here. Michael hasn't missed it because he speaks Hebrew. And that's the name of Isaiah's son, Shir Jashub. It means something like this, a remnant shall return. Now, 
Ahaz knows all about Isaiah because Isaiah has been prophesying from the, the, the reign of his grandfather, uh, Uzziah. So he knows who Isaiah is. He knows his son. And it's as though before Isaiah even opens his mouth in the words of the prophecy, by taking his son uh, with him, it's as though him and what his name means and what that represents, God is already speaking. A remnant shall return. Return from where to where? <laughs> return from exile to Judah and Jerusalem. So it's before even God speaks about the current crisis, he's already speaking about the overarching plan that he has. Because he knows how this situation will work out. Judah will not be destroyed on this occasion. Jerusalem will not be taken on this occasion, but it will be taken, and it will be destroyed. But God's plan will not be destroyed. And those who are truly God's people will not be destroyed, indeed cannot be destroyed. So it's as though God is saying, before I say this to you, remember there's a big picture here. I am sovereign, I am in control, and my plan and purpose will stand, and those who are my people, who hear my voice, who listen to me, remember Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me, they know me, and I give them eternal life. Those who hear my voice will be saved. So the prophet Isaiah, first of all, is sent to the king to just tell him what God had decided would happen. Not what the Israelites, the Syrians, planned to do. Not what Ahaz feared might happen. Not what Ahaz was planning to happen. But God was saying, I'm in control. And this is part of a bigger plan, which I know you don't believe, but you have to be confronted with it anyway. A remnant shall return. We'll come back to that later on. Secondly, the king is reminded of what God's enemies and his enemies are like in God's sight. Now, it's interesting that God is not saying, I'm going to cause these people to change their mind about you and to, to become your friends rather than your enemies. No, they will still be your enemies. They will, they will still try to do what they're going to do, but they will not succeed. What I want you to do is to see how these your enemies appear to me because I want you to look at them in the same way. Now, this is not something new. This is what God always was. You remember whenever the children of Israel were preparing to come into the land of Canaan and the spies were sent in before them in the book of Numbers and they came back and 10 of them had a bad report and two had a good report. And they said, yes, it's a wonderful land. It's, it's everything that God promised us. It's flowing with milk and honey. And look, the, the grapes are so big and so plentiful. We had to carry them on poles to, to get them back in here. But, 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 there's lots of giants there. And there's no point in going in. And we seemed as grasshoppers in their sight. And so we seemed in our own sight. their whole perspective. It was like, if you ever turn a, a telescope around and look at it the wrong way, <laughs> they, they, they were looking not at what God had promised and provided, but at what they couldn't do. And so God refocuses the people here to look at their 
terrible enemies as they seem to him. These two stubs of smoking firebrands. <laughs> They're nothing compared to me. I want you to look at them as I see them. Because that's what's important. It's not important how you see them or, or what the basis is of their reliance. What's important is as I see them. And they may have their plans, but ultimately they're only part of my plan. And my part, their part in my plan at the moment is that they will fail. So he's wanting to correct the view of the people. Thirdly, he contrasts what the enemy has purposed and what they've boasted that they're going to do. They have a, a plan to besiege Jerusalem, break through the wall, depose and probably kill Ahaz and set up this character who we don't knew, knew much about, uh, the son of Tebal, in his place. It's a very, very well thought out plan, except it's going to fail. <laughs> it's not going to succeed. And not only is it not going to succeed, but these enemies that Judah and Ahaz are so terrified about are going to disappear from history completely. This God who's in total control of history, who's sovereign over our individual lives, our families, our nations, and all the nations has a plan. And that's the plan that's going to, to succeed. But there's a challenge, isn't there? Look at the end of verse 9. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Here's where, where two great doctrines come together the sovereignty of God, and the responsibility of man. God is in sovereign control. He doesn't ask us to do what we cannot do and what He has already planned and purposed to do. He asks us to trust Him. But He has already set His heart to turn from God and to worship the false gods that the enemy He's afraid of is already worshiping. We don't know what was happening in his inner spiritual psychology, but it wasn't anything good. And so God is challenging him. Look at, here's the big plan. A remnant shall return. My plans for this people are ultimately plans for, for blessing after going through a period of, of, of intense discipline. The immediate crisis will be resolved. These people will not take Jerusalem. They will not depose you. But really the issue you need to focus on is your relationship with me. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be uh, established. I'm told, and we'll have to take Michael's word for it, that there's a, a word play in Hebrew involved here. If, we, if it comes in later on after the Sunday school, you might tease that one out with him. But the point is still the same, isn't it, in English or Hebrew? If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is and the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We must believe that God exists, that he's in control, and that he's a moral God. 
that our relationship with him and, and how we respond to his word has moral and real-life consequences. That's what Ahaz had abandoned. This is what he's been challenged to come back to. He's been challenged to trust God or himself ultimately be broken and thrown on the ash heap of history like the Israelites and the Syrians that he fears. These were still God's people. These are still described as the house of David. God is still honoring his covenant with them. But unbelief is even less acceptable in God's people than in his enemies. And this is the, the issue here, isn't it? That, that Ahaz, who should have known better, was acting as though he was one of the uh, pagan Syrians who knew no better or the apostate Israelites who had turned their back on the true God. And then God does something to say, look, I know you don't have faith in me at the moment, but I want to show you the reality of who I am, and I want to do something which I don't normally do. Normally I say, do not put the Lord your God to the test. But because I'm God, I can set that aside. And I'm saying, put me to the test. Can you see how, how far God is reaching down to him? He's not reaching down to him as a believer. He's reaching to him as an unbeliever. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. I'm giving you a, a blank slate here, a, a, a blank check. It's almost the, the reverse of what we see happening with Gideon, isn't it? <laughs> Gideon did believe God, but he was terrified. He said, Lord... I do believe you, and I want to do what you put, but will you please give me a sign? And here's the sign I want. Very simple, very direct. But God here is, is saying, look, at whatever you ask, I don't normally do this, but whatever you ask, I'll do it as a sign. And then Ahaz does something which is unbelievably perverse. He uses Scripture as an unbeliever to question God's integrity. <laughs> I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. You know, about the most perverse thing you can think of is somebody who is an unbeliever using Scripture to argue against God. <laughs> but that's what we see happening here. But God doesn't give up. Here now, house of David, is this small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I'm going to confront you with my reality, even though you don't want to hear it. And even though you're quoting scripture to me to try and get out of it. So Ahaz, as he tries to hide his unbelief behind a legalistic misuse of Scripture, God says, I can see through your unbelief. Will you weary God as well as man? And I'm going to give you a sign far greater than anything you could have asked for. And so we have this verse that's quoted and picked up later on by Matthew to ultimately describe the coming of Jesus. And so a bit like uh, Genesis 3, here we have a, a further narrowing of the focus to see what God is going to do. There's a, an immediate fulfillment, 
uh, as we will see later on uh, in the, the, the time of Ahaz himself. But it looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment that God himself in the future would become a man and dwell with his people as one of them. And Jesus is the ultimate pledge of the God of saving power, working for and in and through his sinful uh, people. Later on in chapter 8, we're told that the, the immediate uh, fulfillment of this was the, 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 the new son that Isaiah would, would give, would, would receive as an example in the here and now of God's miraculous power. And then there's the, the warning. Yahweh, the Lord, verse 17, will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. So, in spite of his lack of belief, in spite of his putting the Lord to the test by refusing to put the Lord to the test, even though the Lord invited him to put him to the test, God is still going to be gracious to Judah and Jerusalem and even to Ahaz. But he mustn't think that this present rescue will distract from future discipline. Just as surely as God now refused the enemy permission to destroy Judah, in the future, they would come and besiege Jerusalem and lay waste to the, the province of Judah. God will use the great Assyrian Empire, and I love this verse, the same way as man uses a razor. In the same day, verse 20, the Lord will shave with a hired razor, with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head, the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. So, so this great empire, the Assyrians, the, uh, the Israelites, and the, and the people of Judah were dreading. God says, it's just my instrument. and I will use it as I see fit. But why later on, as Michael read for us earlier, does Matthew return to this particular scripture from the prophecy of Isaiah and link it to the birth of Jesus. But obviously, one reason is how the birth of Jesus happens. Mary, who is a virgin, miraculously conceives through the work of the Holy Spirit this child who will ultimately be known as the Son of God. So there is a very immediate and literal fulfillment in that sense. But it's not just how Jesus comes into the world that's linked to here. It's what he's come into the world to do. He's come into the world to save his people. In the time of Isaiah, if you had asked Ahaz or even any of the other kings, what do you need to be saved from? Well, they would say, we need to be saved from the Israelites. We need to be saved from Syria. We need to be saved from the Assyrians. We need to be saved from the Babylonians. And all that was true. But Isaiah was trying to get them to see something deeper. The reason that you need to be saved from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Israelites and the Syrians is because you've turned your back on God. Ultimately, what you need to be saved from is you. <laughs> 
You need to be saved from you. You need to be saved from your sins. It is your sins that have made the separation between you and your God. And so when the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy comes, which we're going to be celebrating over the next few weeks, God's plan is not hidden anymore. It's totally out in the open. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Look at Matthew 1. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Literally, Yahweh is strong to save, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the one who will accomplish the reality that Isaiah's son's name looked forward to. A remnant shall return. A remnant shall be preserved. preserved. A remnant shall be saved. And in case we didn't get it, uh, Matthew goes on to say, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, God with us changes everything. God with us is the only thing that can deal with the fact that we don't deserve God. How does God deal with our undeservedness? We're made in the image of God. We're created for God to live second by second glorifying Him, which is the very thing we do not do. So how does God deal with our turning from God, he turns to us. Not only does he turn to us, he becomes one of us. Not only does he become one of us, he takes responsibility for us. He lives for us. He dies for us. He rises for us. He makes intercession in heaven for us. And praise God, he's coming back for us. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. Long ago, as hard-hearted Ahaz was trying to figure how to get the water into Jerusalem whenever there was a siege, he was missing the point. God had already got it all worked out. Because the problem wasn't Pekah or Rezin or the Assyrian or the Babylonian. The problem was not out there, the problem was in here. If you believe, you will be established. If you do not believe, you will not be established. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The God who comes calling for Adam in Genesis 3 comes not just calling to his people, but enters in and inhabits them in the person of Jesus and dwells in and among them, living the life that we should have lived, keeping the covenant not just on his side, but on our side, 
striking himself through the hands of the apostate Jews and the Roman pagans on the cross to, to, to die in our place and bear the punishment for our sins, rising victorious over death and now living to make intercession for us. As we think over the next few weeks of the fulfillment of this prophecy, yes, let's enjoy the good food, <laughs> even if you're on the diet. Let's spend time with our families. Let's enjoy everything that God has given us to enjoy. But let's enjoy the greatest gift of all, the giving of God to sinners who don't deserve him, who didn't want him. Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Now the singing group are going to come and lead us in our next song, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. After that, we're going to break up for our Sunday schools. And you know the drill at this stage.